Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Bill Levesi, retired executive director of the Northeastern Ohio Education Association and a proud City Club member. I'm honored to introduce today's forum, a conversation on the uncertain future of Title IX. Since 1972, Title IX has guaranteed equal opportunity on the basis of gender to everyone at colleges and universities that receive federal funding. Over the years, it has been interpreted and expanded to also protect students, both male and female, from sexual violence, sexual harassment, and stalking. However, the future of its coverage is currently being called into question. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has proposed an overhaul of Title IX, narrowing the definition of what constitutes sexual harassment and strengthening the due process rights of the accused. While some would say this would give equal rights to both parties, potentially protecting people of color who are incarcerated at disproportional rates, others are concerned it would favor the accused, dissuade survivors from coming forward, and allow schools to relinquish any responsibility. The proposed regulations have garnered more than 100,000 public comments, making Title IX one of the most contentious rules in the department's history. A final ruling is expected to take several months or years, leaving colleges and universities in a state of flux. Today, we will hear from representatives of several local colleges and universities who will discuss how their institutions are grappling with the potential changes. Moderating today's forum is M.L. Schultze, a freelance reporter who has spent nearly 40 years telling the stories of Northeast Ohio. She is now covering social justice issues, immigration, poverty, politics, economic shifts, and criminal justice for 89.7 WKSU, Ohio Public Radio, and NPR. Before moving to public radio in 2007, Ms. Schultze spent 25 years at the repository in Canton, the last 10 as managing editor. Her work has won awards for enterprise and investigative recording, reporting, as well as best reporter in Ohio citations from the Ohio AP and the Society of Professional Journalists. Ms. Schultze, I now turn the forum over to you to introduce our esteemed panel. Thank you. Uh, and as much as possible, that's the last you're going to hear about me or from me other than the introductions because we're really hoping this will be very much a discussion by three people who grew up knowing they wanted to get into Title IX. Uh, <laughs> They, they will each, as we're talking about the history of the Title IX, share with you their own experiences on how they got into it and how it has evolved. But in the briefest of introductions from my left, your right, uh, we have Mr. Darnell Parker, who is the Senior Associate Vice President for Equity at Case Western Reserve University. Ms. Luan Flores, the Associate Director for the Office of Institutional Equity and Title IX Coordinator for Cleveland State University, and Eric Butler, the Title IX Coordinator for John Carroll University. Um, when I was first asked to do this, I went, oh yeah, you want to talk about women in sports? Sure, why not? 
and was very quickly corrected, no, no, no. So if anybody else is here for that reason, enjoy your lunch, but you're not going to hear anything about that. What you are going to hear about are some of the policy and institutional changes that have occurred since Title IX came into effect in 1972, but also we're hoping very much you will hear about the human beings whose lives are impacted by it, including those whose jobs are to take very human institutions and take regulations that have shifted and, and make them work together somehow. <laughs> so hopefully you'll, you'll at least, if nothing else, walk out of here appreciating what a tough job they have. Um, I'd like to start with you, Mr. Parker, if you could talk a little bit about how Title IX, how it became so ingrained institutions and developed into the titles and the offices that you operate. Sure, so thank you for having me here today. Um, I will share with you how I got into Title IX to connect that. Um, in 2011, the Department of Education released what we know as the Dear Colleague Letter. And my institution said, we need a Title IX coordinator. I said, you have one. They said, we need a Title IX coordinator. So I was like, okay, great. And from that point, I had to do my own little research on the actual regulations that took place. And sometimes we didn't recognize that there was a Dear Colleague letter in 2001 that told K through 12 in higher ed, these are the things you need to be looking at. So the evolution, sometimes people say the whole piece around sexual harassment and violence is new. It really isn't. They told us in 2001 that we needed to start doing a better job on our campuses and addressing these issues. Um, the one thing I would say, I did have the pleasure of meeting Birch Ba, who was one of the writers of Title IX in 1972. He actually came at my last institution, Washington College, to teach them on gender in higher ed. And the one thing he explained was, it really never started out as just being about sexual harassment in <coughs> athletics. So it talked about giving people the opportunity by sex to have the same opportunities in educational settings, whether that's being promoted, whether that is getting equal pay, things of that nature. But it has evolved so much over time recently that now when I say Title IX to people, they no longer say athletics. They, they kind of get scared and go, oh, so you're now gonna talk about sexual violence. And that is, my, in my experience, how that has evolved since I've been in this world. Ms. Flores, you came from an HR background. Um, talk a little bit about how that dovetailed. Yes, well, thank you for having me today. Um, I would agree, and from an employment um, standpoint, I believe that the beginning stage, well, I should say the, where we started making the switch from athletics and focusing on Title IX versus um, focusing a little bit more on what we call sexual violence or gender-based violence, uh, runs really parallel with the employment laws. Um, specifically, I'm talking about like Title VII and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And um, I would say somewhere around, um, not to date myself too much, but I would say maybe around the 90s um, is where we started to see a lot more um, talk about sexual harassment in the employment realm. And um, you, if you were in the workforce at that time, you remember a lot of the trainings and things focusing more on um, sexual harassment and seeing those sort of cheesy videos about like what you shouldn't do in the office and that kind of thing. 
Uh, and so we've seen a parallel with that and what's happening in the employment world and what's happening in higher ed. And so um, with the sexual harassment, it evolves into not just harassment, but under Title IX, it focuses on um, the classroom and um, the inequalities that could uh, happen in the classroom as it, as it relates to gender. Um, so not just the harassment, but then the other pieces that play a role um, when a person's encountered has encountered any gender-based violence and how we need to deal with that as a student. Okay, and Mr. Butler, talk about you, and we'll, we won't mention that you love Pittsburgh, and <laughs> move on. Um, that's a great segue into how I got into this work. Um, so I am uh, kind of a, a hybrid. I started my work in student affairs at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh uh, in 2010 um, while going to law school at night. And at first I thought that student affairs job would just be a way to pay for law school, um, but found myself really loving it. And so after a brief hiatus in, in property law, um, went right back to the student affairs work that I loved doing at Duquesne. Um, and that's right as uh, a lot of the, the things with Title IX were blowing up after the Dear Colleague letter. and. Um, so it became a natural fit for someone with a background in student conduct and student affairs who also has a legal background to step into that role. Um, and so I, I went on from Duquesne to work in an office um, similar to, to Darnell's and, and Lawan's um, that addressed Title IX and all equity issues under Title VI, Title VII um, out at the University of Denver um, and then came back here home to Northeast Ohio to work at John Carroll in the past year. Um, and so that's been an interesting journey for me as someone who truly thinks of myself as a student affairs professional who happens to be a lawyer, who has the background to bring um, to that policy work um, because it, it's provided me with a very human focus and a focus on what's best for our students in the midst of all the conversations about which policy is best and the adversarial process and nature um, that has come out of uh, some of the, the regulations over the past several years. And so it's been an interesting space for me to navigate. Um, but to be clear, I haven't been in Pittsburgh since 2015, so. <laughs> okay, we'll let you stay. Um, so you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the word adversarial and I'd ask all of you to talk about this. As you say, 1972, the law is passed, and, and in its most basic language, it says everybody should have a chance to get an education, uh, to be treated equally and not to have things thrown in their way. Starts to evolve, and we look at, as you mentioned, a kind of a dear colleague, uh, a preface to that in 2001, and then in 2011. You guys all talk about it in the shorthand of dear colleague. What exactly was the administration, the U.S. Department of Education, telling 7,000 schools they needed to do? Any of you can jump in. I'll, I'll jump into that. Um, and so I, I think Darnell did a really beautiful job of laying out the way that the, the enforcement of this law has evolved, right? And, and there's a lot of material about uh, you know, how it's evolved since 1972, a lot of emphasis in the 90s, which I think may have been even spurred from emphasis under Title VII in the HR world, as Lawan mentioned. And so for the first time, we saw um, not formal regulation, but guidance from the Department of Education saying that if, if we receive a concern that you're not in compliance with Title IX because you're not doing enough to limit a, an environment that fosters sexual harassment, this is how we are going to interpret the law and this is how we're going to enforce it. 
Um, and so, you know, there are no shortage of people who point out that that 2011 letter is not binding. It could have been challenged, but we saw a, a huge movement from schools moving to try to be better. And I think um, that despite the criticisms of that document by some people out there, um, no one will dispute that it was very effective at getting schools to take this issue seriously, where um, before maybe folks thought they weren't taking it seriously enough. And so uh, I, I was certainly part of that movement and kind of grew up with it as a, a student affairs practitioner and a lawyer in higher ed. Um, and so it, it has reached a point now where I, I think we all recognize that we can do better at addressing this work. We maybe just disagree on how, and there are a lot of folks talking through what that process and what that system looks like. Um, I, I, when I speak with folks, I, I emphasize that it's important to remember that we're not talking about a criminal process, even though we like to compare it to the due process protections of that process, and for good reason. There, there are some gems to be found in there, right? Um, but it's also analogous to the, the workplace investigation process that we see under Title VII um, with regard to its scope and its purpose. And so folks in higher ed have been trying to find a balance in between those two things. And I think trying to pick the best of both worlds um, to offer both access and equity and, and justice and due process. And but so the criticism that was made of that Dear Colleague letter and what followed was the, the shaming list that schools would be publicly held up for what they did or did not do. Uh, and also that some schools' knee-jerk reaction swung the other way. Talk about the balance. What we're talking about are the accused, people accused of sexual violence or harassment, and the people who are doing the accusing, who say they've been victimized by it. How do you balance that in a non-legal, criminal legal situation? I think we got to take it back to understanding we're educational institutions. So it shouldn't shift just because we're talking about Title IX. We do things in student conduct as well. And we have to support both students, whether they're the cues that responded, but also the witnesses as well that go through our process. So I think we need to start there a little bit in recognizing these are 18 to 22 year olds coming to a college campus and they're trying to figure things out. And that is our hope and goal to help teach them some of those skills of how to communicate, but also how to read a policy. And I think the one criticism I do have of how to balance that is, sometimes we write our policies in a way where they're starting to be too legalistic. So we expect a 18 or 22 year old to understand what due process actually looks like. But the other piece of it, too, is in striking that balance is having the conversation with the individuals. At Case Western Reserve University, we don't use the term accuser, victim, and so forth. And the reason why we don't use victim is, from my own personal experience as a social worker, telling someone that they were a victim, a woman actually said to me, who do you think you are telling me I'm a victim? You don't know me, you call me by my name, or we're done. So that was a wake-up call there. So looking at treating people, no matter how they come in your office, the way they want to see themselves. So we use reporting party and responding party. We also make sure we give both sides their rights, and we provide interim measures and accommodations for both parties to make sure, because until we come to a final resolution, that individual 
has not been found responsible for anything. And I think sometimes we hear in the media a little bit, well, this school jumped too quickly to do that. That's not always the full story. So I think we need to take it back to the basics of understanding their students. We need to start understanding their needs while we're actually doing the investigation. Ms. Flores, you're nodding your head. Yes, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And the thing I would just add in, too, is that um, the, the words that are coming to my mind are relationship management. And that's a lot of what we do um, because we don't know. And you're right, we have to make sure that we um, provide due process to all parties involved because we know how this will impact both sides, right? And so. Uh, we have to make sure that we, and, and at Cleveland State, I would say we do a really good job of making sure that we clearly communicate and articulate every single step of the process and we provide the same level of supports for all parties involved because we know that, you know, students who don't receive those services, whether they're on the, they're being, they're the accused individual uh, or respondent, as we call them, or the um, complaining party. Um, that the, the outcome of it could be devastating for anyone involved. And so we keep that at the forefront of our minds, um, you know, no matter who we're dealing with. So I absolutely agree. And Schultz, if I could go back to your original question about striking that balance, I think we're seeing a huge movement in higher ed right now, um, notwithstanding what's happening on the regulatory side, where schools want to do right by all their students. They want to repair harm, they want to stop harm, and they want to help them grow to develop into um, mature and productive members of society. Um, we're sending them out into the world as alumni. And so we're seeing a huge movement by schools to introduce alternative approaches, um, particularly around restorative justice practices. And, and there's a group out of the University of San Diego doing really great work um, on that, as well as the University of Michigan. And schools are picking up left and right to take a more restorative approach rather than a punitive one. Um, and, and I think we're going to see that evolve in, in the coming years to try to strike that balance that you're talking is about. Is there something about Title IX that, that really mm -hmm. lends itself to uh, this restorative justice model more so than punitive? Is there... Uh, you know, it, I don't know that it's about Title IX in particular. I think for a long time in this country we've thought about justice as being punitive. Um, rather than restorative, and I think folks are pushing back on that now. But certainly when we're talking about Title IX in, in the context of sexual violence, these are hard cases to handle. Um, and quite frankly, not every reporting party wants to go through a formal investigative process. We've seen that on the criminal side for, for centuries, right? Um, and sometimes they, they want to move forward. Sometimes they want a, res a resolution that's best for everyone and they want to heal. And there are folks offering processes with these um, restorative justice practices that at least attempt to offer that uh, and to offer something that hasn't been available in, in any system, whether it's under Title VII, Title IX, in the criminal system um, for the entire history of, of these types of violations. And so I, I think for that reason, it's become very popular. And I think we're going to see uh, schools increasingly move in, in that direction to try to offer um, remedy to their students. And the reason we're talking about this now as opposed to a year from now uh, is because it's got a currency. Um, we have some new rules that have been promoted by the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, that kind of changes the direction from the Dear Colleague letter. Can you guys talk about what's there now, what you see evolving? The final regulations obviously aren't out yet, but what are some of the biggest differences that are being proposed? I think the 
one major piece, and this is talking to our students on our campus and their concerns, is the cross, direct cross-examination piece. Um, I do have a concern as an, a college administrator, not a Title IX coordinator, but more of are we making it more adversarial for our students and are we going to see reporting go down? We want our students to report things to us in the way they feel comfortable doing. And that is the one part of the, rec there are many, don't get me wrong, um, but that is the one part that calls for concern. You're asking an 18, two 18-year-olds to cross-examine each other or we have an attorney cross-examining another student. And we look at the socioeconomic imbalance there too. Can one party, and this is for the reporting party and a responding party, can they actually afford having legal counsel? And those are, I think, some of the concerns I do see. The current policy, and we talked about this in the green room, I, there's one thing to understand. VAWA actually told us, colleges and universities, students have the right to choose an advisor of their choice, and it can be a private attorney, it could be anyone. So when I hear we're now try, trying to prevent attorneys into the Title IX process, I have to tell people that part is already in law. <laughs> so that, that is not the biggest issue. The issue is now the full participation now in the process. And that's where I see it different than the guidance that we had that's no longer in existence, but what they're proposing now. So a situation comes up, an allegation is made, how do you handle it now? And we'll have to go with the short version of it, but uh, what happens? So let me just add in there now about the cross-examination. So from a public institution uh, standpoint, um, if you're in the Sixth Circuit, um, we're already actually, we've already, in, we've already uh, started doing the cross-examination procedures. And so while we haven't added them, uh, I'm sorry, Doe, Doe, Doe versus Baum uh, was the case where it told us that we had to, um, because of the case, if you, if you haven't read it, it essentially said that we have to, as a public institution, um, have a cross-examination procedure if they're opposing facts um, uh, pointing to credibility for cases. And so um, since that has happened, it's been uh, less than a year, I'd say, um, we've added that into our, uh, just our procedures. And so uh, we've had an opportunity, and we share the same, um, the same viewpoint as most of, of our uh, colleagues in terms of creating a chilling effect for people um, who want to file complaints about sexual violence because you know, like you said, you have a college-age person coming forward saying that I've been assaulted, I've been, my power has been taken away in some, in some way, shape, or form, and now we're saying, oh, well, we're, we want you to face your, face the person who has um, committed this offense. And so that on its, on the surface, I think creates a chilling effect for people, and maybe we'll see some reporting go down. So um, how do you handle the cross-examination? So how we've handled it so far, is um, it, well, we try to um, it do as the best of um, an investigation so that we're not using, we're not coming down to just some of those uh, key points where credibility is an issue, um, but we have actually had to use it. And I can say that I, I don't think that it's been, it's been exactly what we thought, um, that you have you know, um, an imbalance, because in this particular case, there was a student, the student, one student had um, legal counsel, the other one didn't. 
Uh, and so we did, uh, we didn't have them directly in the same room, but uh, we uh, used uh, Skype. And so it just, it was, it was rehashing, you know, um, a, a very delicate situation all over again. And so I don't know that it changed our minds uh, one way or the other about the outcome of a case. So I say I'd like to say that for public institutions, uh, while the regulations have not come out just yet, we know the proposed regulations say that that'll be one of the things, but for public institutions, we're already doing that. And I don't know that it's been, and that's been the, uh, the consensus for other public institutions that it hasn't been terribly effective, and, but we are doing it. And if I could just add some context for the folks in the room who aren't up to their neck in higher ed every day. <laughs> um, it, it's important to note that one of the greatest criticisms of Title IX enforcement um, to the present day has been a lack of consistency and a lack of clarity from one institution to the next. And so now we're in a place where the Sixth Circuit's requiring this as a matter of constitutional due process for public schools but we're at a circuit split. Others, other circuits have explicitly held it's not required. Others have been silent. And so now that process is going to look different for you as a student, depending on which state you go to school in and which institution you go to school in in that state, whether it's public or private. Mm -hmm. And I think the Department of Education is making a genuine effort to bring consistency um, to these processes. And, and I think we admire that effort. It's just a question of what that process looks like that folks disagree about. So. And, and the disagreement falls even along the lines of what is the level of evidence that's going to be required, preponderance of evidence versus clear and convincing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, I, I'm happy to offer a, a really brief remark, not getting into the weeds about which is more appropriate, but certainly um, we've seen preponderance of the evidence, which a lot of folks explain as 50 in a feather. Is it more likely than not or less likely than so based on the evidence that this occurred? Um, and this is consistently the standard in a lot of administrative and civil proceedings similar to those under Title VII and Title IX, right? Um, but then folks want a higher level of uh, evidence based on the egregiousness of these cases and, and the impact for everyone involved. Um, and so they call for a higher standard called clear and convincing. Um, what the Department of Higher Education, I'm sorry, the Department of Education has proposed up to this point is consistency across your processes. Um, so saying basically if you're using one standard for one process, you should be using that for all of them um, at your institution. And there are folks who um, have different thoughts on that. But again, I, I think the goal is to create consistency there uh, as much as possible. So. Anything to add to that? Okay, for those on radio, they're shaking their heads. <laughs> Nothing bad. Um, a little bit more on the process, if the Department of Education, when the Department of Education comes up with its new regulations, how, I mean, you guys are the ones who have to implement them. What are you anticipating as far as time frame, as far as support, as far as direction? What's coming your way? First, we're hoping that we get some time um, that it, they don't come out and they say you have to implement these tomorrow. That won't be that won't work. Uh, so we're hoping one that we get um, an adequate amount of time to make sure that we are in compliance. Okay. And and, and I think this is an area we cannot rush. Yeah. Um, and I know at minimum they have to give thirty. They said they can give us thirty days to implement this. Each one of our institutions are different. Case Western Reserve University is a large university. We have many different constituencies that we're going to have to come together to get their feedback on this to make sure it is still aligning with the university's mission. I understand we got to put something in place, 
but I'd rather do it well and take our time to do it and make sure we're still serving our communities rather than this needs to be put in place in 30 days or else. Because that doesn't serve the student well, doesn't serve the institution, and doesn't serve the larger community at the end of the day. And as a practical matter, I'd hope the Department of Education would acknowledge the nature of their constituents and that we operate on an academic year, right? Um, so implementing new policies in February would be really, really challenging, especially given the high likelihood that you have pending cases in that moment. So what happens when you change the rules mid-case? Um, and so I think uh, summer implementations for policy and, and uh, revision are very common in higher education, and I, I would hope that that would be on the radar of the Department of Education. And, and for each of you, regardless of the size of your institution, it's not a matter of just training the people in the Title IX office or even in the HR office. It's university-wide that you would have to tr do the training. And, and we do quite a bit of training around our current policies now. And then we may have to put something in place in February. And then you're talking about training every single student but also the faculty and staff to help understand how to support our students on campus. So that's additional training. So you're looking at shifting and then you're going to get more of a resentment from your community rather than we're supporting you. And I, and I wish when they do this, they really think that carefully that this is great. You're doing what you think is best, but I'm even in favor of saying July 1, you need, like they did with the Violence Against Women's Act when they made those changes. Mm -hmm. You have one full year to put these in place. That worked because we got people to understand, we got feedback, and we were able to implement things that was appropriate to our institution that made our students feel safe and comfortable. All right. I'm M.L. Schultze, and today we're listening to a forum on the uncertain future of Title IX, featuring Eric Butler, the Title IX coordinator at John Carroll University, Luan Flores, the associate director for the Office of Institutional Equity and the Title IX coordinator for Cleveland State University, and Darnell Parker, the senior associate vice president for equity at Case Western Reserve University. Um, we are about to go to the audience Q&A. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. <coughs> Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Remy, oh my, I'm so sorry, or Osanya. I expect that you're going to correct me on that pronunciation before we go any further. Um, I'd like to take the first question. Could you give us some um, idea of the enforcement side of Title IX? Um, do you, what are your affirmative requirements? Do you, have, do you have affirmative reporting requirements? Or are you audited regularly? Uh, and then is there a history of an institution actually being defunded for violations? So it, and I just need to clarify the question. When you say enforcement, are you talking about enforcement by the Department of Education upon the institutions? Yes. Yeah. I, I presume that that's, that's, the, uh, that's the arm of enforcement, is to defund an institution. Is that correct? So that's certainly the mechanism that the legislature used to pass Title IX, right? It's tied to funding. Um, and so I, I don't know if either of you want to pick that up. I'm happy to answer it. So, so, so I, I guess I'm up. Um, yeah, so the, 
the Title IX is enforced upon institutions by the Department of Education and specifically the Office for Civil Rights. Um, it is tied to federal funding. It's my understanding that a school has never been totally defunded, which is one of the criticisms, is to say there's no incremental approach that they can take like we have under the Clery Act, where we have designated fines for each violation. Um, and so it could be read as an all or nothing approach. And I think practically speaking, the Department of Education is not looking to do that. And so as a result, where folks have brought complaints to the Department of Education against an institution, we've seen a lot of resolution agreements between the institution and the department agreeing that the institution would take certain steps to, to resolve uh, any errors or omissions. Um, and, and that's provided a lot of the guidance that schools rely on up to this point in, in determining how the Department of Ed is going to enforce Title IX, even though they, they've not always been consistent from one case to the next. Every school is different, right? Um, but that's certainly been one of the criticisms is that we don't have clear guidance outside of those, those resolution agreements, and there's no clear mechanism for enforcement in the way that we have with Cleary, with a fine for each one. Um, and very briefly, I want to mention that your, your question raises an important point that folks in general tend to misunderstand, and that's that it's the institution that's bound by Title IX, right? Not students. And so the institution's not acting as an agent of the federal government. Um, they're merely obeying the law rather than enforcing it. And so I, I think that gets lost in the conversations about uh, due process and where the institution stands. But the, the shaming list kind of acknowledged that when, when the uh, Dear Colleague letter came out and threatened to put institutions that didn't comply, just put them up for public examination. That kind of acknowledges we're not going to pull the funding, doesn't it? They were, they were publicly um, publishing those, those complaints, but it becomes less of a shame list when everyone's on it, right? Um, and so I, I think from that perspective, we were all in that same boat, and it's my understanding that the Department of Education is not publishing those anymore, and so folks can get it through open records requests, but it, it's not public at this time, generally speaking. Uh, Our next question comes from Twitter. Um, if passed, do you see these changes trickling down to K through 12 schools? That's a great question. <laughs> um, because I've had some friends um, ask me that because they know what I do for a living at my kid's school. Um, yeah, there will be some trickle down. Um, and I think when we heard that there's some programming talking about doing more education through K through 12, it's going to be needed. Um, and the key trickle down pieces, and I've had this debate with people, the mandated reporting aspect of it. We're so focused on higher ed, but K through 12 have a piece in this as well. Yeah where teachers really are going to have to be well-trained to identify, to report, make sure the process is clear following on the FERPA, to making sure that the parents are actually educated enough to know if my child is going through this process from K through 12, what are their rights? Because I'm gonna be quite honest, I, I read everything my kid brings home, including their handbook every year, but many mm. parents don't. So this will trickle down to K through 12. And the other piece is too, what we're doing in K through 12, they're gonna see has to kind of transfer over when they go to higher ed too. Mm -hmm. And I think we will see that trickle down one way or the other. You mentioned parents. A lot of what you do now is dealing with parents who get that call from their child uh, three in the morning. Talk about that aspect of this. That happens. Um, a lot more than we probably um, like to think about. But you're right, you have parents who are calling, and again, 
um, they're calling, uh, which you can, any parent can understand, you know, whether your child is um, the respondent or the complainant in one of these, or, or even a witness, um, you know, you get a phone call in, in the middle of the night from your child saying that something really bad has happened, of course your knee-jerk reaction is going to be to find, to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the challenge we have, um, you know, as, as we're dealing with uh, young adults in most cases, is that um, we can't give any specific information unless the student has um, signed off a release telling us that they, they want us to discuss information with the parent or anyone else. And so um, you can see from a parent's perspective how that becomes a bit of a challenge, um, that you have to really trust the, the school and the process. And so what we typically talk about uh, with the parents and things are um, more process oriented, to let them know what our process looks like and what you know, what they should expect for next steps and things like that. Um, it becomes especially challenging um, when you have, um, you know, college age students who don't want their, want their parents involved. And so the parents call and they're wanting answers. And as another parent, I totally want to give them the answers, but I know that that's against our rules, so we don't do that. And so um, that is a huge part of what we deal with. And I think it goes back to that whole relationship management piece. You know, when you drop your child off for college, you have no idea, you know, what could happen. And this is one of those things that could happen. And so I think the, the education piece starts early. And um, so that, you know, in the event you, you find yourself in a situation or your child as a parent, um, that you have some idea about, you know, uh, what this means and, and what it could look like. Um, the other thing that we um, get a lot of um, from parents, they're worried, of course, but they're asking about the university's policies and then they also may add in that criminal element. You know, what does that mean? Is the is, is police involved? And these are two separate functions and I always like to explain that we are more on the administrative side we're determining whether or not a person can be a student at our university and that's a little bit different and the outcomes may be different and so for a parent um, who doesn't have a lot of information about this it can be a scary process so we try to you know calm their nerves about it and to add on to that too what we try to do at Case Western Reserve each incoming um, undergrad student um, first-year student, they get a letter from me to their parents explaining what Title IX is and what our expectations are. Because a lot of parents will come on campus and go, I have no idea what that is. When I send that letter out, I get a lot of thank you for doing this. Thank you for letting me know your office exists. And one actually said, I can't wait to meet you on move-in day. You know, that is part of that relationship building, and that's what we don't hear enough about in the media, is how we're having these conversations with the parent. And there are times I take a little bit of a different approach. If I feel that a student is going to face expulsion or suspension, when I meet with them in our process, I tell them, it's a good time to call your parent a guardian. Mm -hmm. And I know FERPA is there, but I try to have that conversation and say, let's get you that support now before we get to the hearing and you have to pick up the phone and call your parent and say, I may be getting kicked out of school. But also having that conversation because you're going to have to support the parents too. Sometimes we forget. Mm -hmm. We think it's just the students. It's the guardians too. We have to provide some counseling to them because they will go, I never thought this would happen to my child. Mm -hmm. No one ever really does. 
So I'll share one quick anecdote along those lines just to tie it back to where we started this conversation. Um, in one case I had in Colorado, I had a father living in New Jersey who hopped on a plane when he got the phone call from his student at 7.30 p.m. and was waiting outside my office at 8.30 the next day in Denver, Colorado. Um, and he went to that office to talk to me and he cried for about 30 minutes um, during that conversation. I, I think the reaction and the experience of parents does a better job than anything else to illustrate the human impact of these policies and this work and what's at stake here. Mm -hmm. um, we started talking about the human experience and, and what we're dealing with here. It, it's easy to forget that when we start talking about policies and, mm -hmm. and process. So. Hi. So um, this all seems very complicated from a standpoint that you all keep emphasizing that you're education institutions mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to be law enforcement or and we all know that teachers and educators do much more than simply teach but they're the social workers they often have to enforce these rules so my question is more so on um, that balancing act and with the enforcement or potential enforcement of these changes when does law enforcement become involved does law enforcement have to be involved and um, are these changes making your institutions feel more like law enforcement? And how does that look different than how perhaps educational institutions should deal with these very sensitive issues? I actually joke sometimes and said, I wish I went to law school, then go on and get my doctor in education. Um, Do both. I'm not doing both. That was enough. Um, Don't go to Sorry. Um, but you bring up a valid point. And the one thing I, I hear that argument a lot of why won't law enforcement handle it? We have to remember the person who's reporting it is the decision maker. If they feel comfortable including law enforcement in their complaint. And that's where I want to give that power to that individual. Because even if they're in an intimate partner violence situation, me being a male in this role telling someone, oh, well, I am going to call the police on this because I think it's the appropriate thing, I'm taking power back from that person again. So we need to listen a little bit. And, and by Ohio law, we do have to report to law enforcement. But CWRU, we created a MOU and understanding with our local law enforcement. We tell the student, we have to report this, but guess what? You don't have to talk to them if you don't want to. And then the students feel a lot more comfortable with that because they realize I have control over this process. When you say, do I feel like we are becoming more of law enforcement? You know, my best friends who are probably listening to this right now even said, yeah, they joke around sometimes and say, I see you as law enforcement. And I think that is weighing on the conscience of many Title IX coordinators in the field right now of whether do they want to continue in this role if we're not going to be perceived as educators that we're now going to be perceived as an extension of law enforcement. So that's just my view on the point. Yes, we, we also, we don't, um, we provide um, information and resources 
um, for all of, all of the students, um, but we don't ever compel someone to go to the police. And so we have a really good, at Cleveland State anyway, a really good relationship with the um, Cleveland State Police Department. And so we are in constant communication about things, but we um, take a trauma-informed approach in that we give the power back to um, the person that's um, you know, filing the complaint about these things. And so um, I think for the most part, that's been well-received. And so we always offer um, the option if they want us to, we even offer to walk over with them um, to, for any support and resources. But we don't want to, um, you know, give the, and we even talk about this when we go out, we talk to all of our um, freshman students and then other specific groups of students that we've identified that underreport these types of things. And so we go out and we're very clear about, you know, we want to give you the power. We don't want to tell you what you want to do. You, we want to empower you to make your own decisions, but we will support you 100%. Um, and give you the resources that you need. Um, and so uh, we, you know, we, we don't make students do it, but if they want to, we totally support it. Have you ever encountered any, yeah. any pushback on that from institutions that obviously have a stake in these things not becoming mm -hmm. <laughs> public or, or pervasive of any kind? Do you right. have any institutions who are just like, keep it quiet? I, I, I would push back on that. I, I think that um, rhetoric has entered the public sphere um, obviously, there may have been cases with individual in administrators, individual institutions, and anecdotes about that happening, but I think by and large, schools are trying to support their students. We're already bound by a federal law called the Clery Act requiring us to report out crimes that occur on campus. They're in an annual report. We have daily crime logs. That information's out there for anyone to view. And so the, the notion that schools are trying to sweep this under the rug, I, I think, is a false one. Um, and I, I would reiterate Darnell and Lawan's points. Um, about student choice. I, I think the original question raises one of the, the greatest points of confusion in the public conversation about the relationship with law enforcement. Nothing about the Title IX process stops someone from going to the police or stops the police from pursuing a case. Um, and nothing about a criminal investigation stops universities from uh, fulfilling their obligation to look into that, to investigate it, to uh, make sure that we're not fostering a hostile environment. In the same way that if you get assaulted at work under Title VII, your employer has an obligation to do something to address that, and they can't wait for the law enforcement or the criminal justice process to unfold over two years. Um, and so they, they operate in parallel. Um, sometimes there's overlap, sometimes there, there may be collaboration, um, but nothing stops a person from doing one or the other or both or neither. Many of the situations I expect you guys deal with uh, involve impaired uh, uh, accused, impaired um, uh, victims, and the role of alcohol plays a large part in a lot of these one-on-one -on -one confrontations when you have no witnesses. I'm curious as to what each of your institutions is doing with respect to training of students with respect to alcohol and drug use so that some of these situations can be avoided from the outset. I don't want to hug the mic, but can yeah. I just jump on something yeah, sure. real quick before we answer that question? Um, on, on the question of impairment, folks say there are no witnesses. I, I always push back on that. Um, it, it's been my experience that there are always folks who saw them before, who saw them after, who maybe texted with them, who saw them on social media. And so I, I wanted to dispel that myth that this is always, quote, he said, she said, word against word is the, the phrase that we use. Um, because that information is out there. But back to the, the original point about mm -hmm. educating. At, uh, at Cleveland State, what we're, what we're doing, uh, we actually uh, were part of a 
pilot project that has gone through, well, the pilot was last school year, and so for this school year, uh, we uh, rolled out a, um, a training um, that was sponsored by the Ohio Department of Education, uh, and so the topic was um, the intersection between consent, alcohol, and sex. And um, so we've rolled that out um, this, this school year, and so we've done those trainings. Uh, and so I talked a little bit about some of the groups that under-report uh, where we've um, focused a lot of our attention um, is to be more intentional about going to those groups. And so some of those groups for us include um, students that identify as LGBTQ, um, uh, 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 student, I'm sorry, student veterans, is another area. Uh, we know that men underreport these kinds of things, and so we're going to talk about those. Talk about you know why it's important um, to get the help, and uh, we've dealt with um, Greek life and then student athletes, and so we rolled that out for those groups first, and then it'll be rolled out for the general student population. Um, the other thing that we do, we always focus. We have a uh, we provide online training that's mandatory for. Um, all of all of the incoming students for Cleveland State, and then we go out uh, again at their um, orientations to talk to them about consent and um, alcohol, and specifically the question between um, you know whether a person's intoxicated or incapacitated, and that's sort of where we kind of draw our attention to because those are two different things, and so can have very uh, two different outcomes, two very different outcomes. And so that's what we're doing um, in terms of educating and making sure that they understand, you know, what that looks like. And it's also sort of strategic to, to put a face with the office so that if they encounter any of these things, a lot of what we do, um, we're not just the Title IX office. I actually work for the um, Office of Institutional Equity. And so we want to make sure that students don't have a negative connotation associated with it. So we try to go out on a positive note to make sure that they know who we are. And we do a lot of problem solving. Um, so they'll call and, you know, have questions. Oh, and, and uh, are okay with calling and ask questions about if someone was drinking or, or high off of something or another. And so we've created those relationships. And so in the event that something happens, we, they already com they're already comfortable with us because they've seen us in, in the trainings and things like that. I was in the forefront of uh, getting e um, Title IX passed in the, in the 70s and, um, and also implemented. Um, you know, I look at Title IX as being the greatest piece of legislation that has brought women to where they are today because it was so much more than sports. It was admissions. It was access to different areas. And, um, and my question is, um, with, with this huge added charge and responsibility, how much time do you have left to spend on things like, you know, um, tenure for women, uh, you know, having girls, um, having women into more non-traditional areas, getting more of them in, you know, equaling the imbalances that there still are. Um, and I'm just curious how much time you have left to spend on those kinds of issues that are there in front of us every day. Thank you. I'm glad you actually asked, brought that up because when I talk to people, I do remind them I have other aspects of my role that I do besides sexual misconduct investigations. 
Um, so, you know, we do focus on that. So at CWRU, there, because we have a medical school, nursing school, we do get audits from people who provide us grants. So the National Science Foundation passed legislation or rules now that we have to report if any of our recipients face any form of discrimination. But then they also throw in the question about what is your recruitment like? And we have to answer that question sometime. Um, the last one we did, they asked, show us your recruitment materials. How are you actually going out to make sure you're recruiting enough men or women for this specific academic area? Um, and people do call my office and ask questions about, we are thinking about putting language on this flyer. What do you think? Or how would this impact other aspects of campus? If we do this group for all men, how would this look for women? And that is the common question that's asked in K through 12. Because some people say, well, you have a group for women, where's the men's group? And, and I tell people, well, let's take a step back for a minute. What is the need right there? Or is there the opportunity to have that additional access as well? Well, yes, okay, that, that is what our roles are. So we do a lot more than, at least in my world, more than the sexual misconduct stuff. We also have to ensure, because some student who is not a student at Case Western Reserve can file a complaint with my office and say they were denied admissions to our institution, they believe, based on their sex. That's an investigation my office is looking into. And then I will have to start looking at numbers, documents, and so forth. I would just add that in addition to the important point about the other forms of sex and gender harassment and discrimination, there are other forms of harassment and discrimination. Uh, and, and Darnell and the one run offices that address all of those. Um, and I did at the University of Denver. I'm uniquely situated in sex and gender issues here at John Carroll. Um, but I, I think it's easy to lose sight of that. When we talk about this work in Title IX, um, I think it would be a mistake to elevate that work over addressing the forms of harassment and discrimination against race, religion, age, the other protected classes um, that have faced an uphill battle over the last half century. So. Right. And just in addition to that, we, so we, the Title IX is, is sort of the forefront, but um, we're the Office of, of Equity, and so we, we cover all of the different areas, and not just for students, we also deal with these things for faculty and staff. And um, it can be time-consuming um, because of the investigative piece of it, but um, we try to, you know, equally, you know, well, we try to figure out based on our caseload and, and what's going on, what's, you know, what takes precedent and what's most important at the time, and then we kind of go from there. Maybe you touched, or you did touch on this a little bit when you <clears throat> talked about the mission of your institutions. One of the changes that's been proposed is to hold you guys accountable for what happens on campus, not off campus, but I would take it that each of your institutions defines your mission beyond just what happens on campus. Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I think, and I'm just speaking from a private institution perspective, when I explained that to our students, because they did, they had some concerns when it first came out with these proposed regs. And I said, they're just setting the floor for our institutions. They're pretty much saying, if a student was to go to OCR and file a complaint against us because we didn't take action against 
uh, behavior that happened off campus, OCR is gonna turn around and say, well, we're not requiring them to do that. that. That's the way I explain it to them. But that for us does not stop us from making a decision based on the values, our mission of our institution to say, yes, we will address behaviors beyond the borders of our campus if it's going to impact the environment on our campus. I think we sometimes forget college students go out. No. <laughs> and this is for faculty and staff too. And sometimes their interactions come back on our campus and we can't ignore that. So we still have to address it to the best of our ability. Thank you. Today we've been listening to a forum on the uncertain future of Title IX. Our community partner for today's forum is the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence. And in addition, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Baker Hostetler and Ogletree Dakins, as well as students from St. Martin de Porres. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We're happy to have all of you here. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, panelists and Ms. Schultze, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.